What is up, everybody? I'm your host, Jayla Mann, and you're listening to the True Tech Podcast, your favorite podcast for the latest tech news, interviews, and more. All right, let's begin with um, a few news stories. Today, we got a lot of stories, so um, it's going to be a really interesting episode. And before we get started, for all of you who aren't familiar, I have a Patreon account, and you can go support me at Patreon at patreon.com slash True Tech to help support me and help the podcast and the content keep coming. So please check out um, patreon.com slash true tech. There are different benefits at, at each level. There's an ad free version of the episode. There's also, you can also be on the show. There are early access and much, much more. So you can go check it out in the link in the show notes below or patreon.com slash true tech. All right. So first story is that, um, gaming can't fix its abuse problem one person at a time. And so the story is about, um, how, like, you can't make a video game until you can make a good company. So over the v- last week, dozens of developers, journalists, and streamers have come forward on Twitter f- with um, allega- allegations of abuse they've endured as part of the video game industry. Their stories span several high-profile companies and include figures in powerful positions. While the sheer number of people speaking up at once is remarkable and concurrent with similar waves of hashtag me too allegations in the worlds of comedy pro wrestling comic books it's not new and this is an important movement moment of um recon reconnect reconning it's also one that seems to replay in the video game industry and others every few months now the gaming has had what may many call its hashtag me too moment several times over we know what to expect each new story if acknowledged at all is met with the same weak promises and little material change so basically companies can't fix this abuse and it's just really bothering people and this really has to do with the gaming industry and i find this a little interesting because um these companies should do something and also, we have another Spotify story. Just like how Spotify tried to get the Ro- Joe Rogan and were successful, they now want the hosts of the Nod podcast to hand over their podcast to Spotify. So, um, Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings works hard to bring their black culture podcast, The Nod, to life in 2017. While working full-time as employees on other programs for Gimlet Media, as well as on the independent podcast called For Color Nerds, Luce and Eddings um, brainstormed the Nod's concept, recorded it, and edited a sample 20-minute episode along with a 10-minute segment and a trailer, and then pitched the show to the higher-ups at Gimlet Media, a podcasting network has that has been since acquired by Spotify. They eventually got the green light and began releasing an episode a week for nearly three years. On their show, they shared their thoughts about culture and events, and in Luce and Edding's eyes, they made the nod, not Gimlet or Spotify. So, um, our show is the way... So, this is um, a quote from Eddings. So, he said, Our show is the way we, Brittany and I, see the world. 
and we call ourselves Blackness' biggest fans. We don't call ourselves necessarily ex- experts. We feel like we have a unique way of looking at things, and our show is our exploration of that. So that was his quote. And when Eddings and Luce thought about expanding the Nods universe beyond podcasts, they ran into a problem. Spotify owns all of the rights to the brand, meaning if they wanted to shop the Nod name around for a book deal, movie deal, or any other use of its name, they'd need Spotify's permission. At the end of the day, investing in someone's talent isn't the same as having the talent yourself, Luce tells. Luce says, and she's saying that it's very strange that Spotify and Gimlet are the only people who can claim ownership over the Nod and its segments. So I think this is um, some more controversy about Spotify and um, the podcasting world. And Luce and Eddings are only two of the podcasters who have been speaking about the constraints of their podcasting contracts, which were written before they hosted successful shows. Misha um, Youssef tweeted about lacking control over her show covering Muslims' lives in the U.S., which is owned by Southern California's KPCC. Tracy Clayton and Heaven Nigautu, the host of BuzzFeed's Now Cancelled um, Another Round, also recently tweeted their desire to own their podcast back catalog, aka their RSS feed, which is not only contains their former episodes but also gives them ability to push new ones to existing subscribers and that's a little content about um the podcasting world so if you want to hear more about this you can go check this out at the verge because they were the one describing this and i think it's really interesting how spotify wants to be the biggest name not only in audio but video podcasting music everything so um spotify is really putting up something against these podcasters and BuzzFeed could easily um, carry some flavor from me and I imagine others by granting me and Clayton the rights to the other round. Back catalog, a thing that is free and is easy to do. Nigato wrote, another under the hashtag, hashtag free another round, former and current BuzzFeed staff tweeted in support along with other media figures. Even Lin-Manuel Miranda joined in. These hosts don't own their shows because they've created and hosted the series while employed by a media company that paid their salaries. But the intimate format of podcasts can make that corporate control contentious. Listeners and hosts feel connected and fans want to see shows continue even after a network cancels them, as in the case of another round. That's why control over a podcast back catalog or RSS feed has become a focal point for hosts. Once they leave a network or their show ends, the podcast networks have free reign to um, pivot their feed, insert new ads, or even relaunch a show with a new host. The podcast feed is the thing like, it is a key to the kingdom. And a podcast collective and it is the only way that you can connect with 100% of your audience. People have social media, personally, that listeners go ahead and follow, future projects mailing lists, but your audience is totally and utterly composed of subscribers to your RSS feed. And that's what Amanda McLaughlin, CEO of Multitude Studios, a podcast collective and production company, says. So yeah, it's a lot of comfort, controversy uh, on whether Spotify and these big media companies should be doing this, 
but um, it's a little more controversy and stuff like that. And I find this a bit interesting as well because I'm a podcaster. All right, so that was it for that story. I just thought it was a little interesting because you guys are listening to podcasts, so why not hear a little podcasting news as well? Okay, so for our next story, it's about ThinkPad and... Um, the ThinkPad trackpoint tried to build a better mouse, but is it better? Well, in today's digital age, it sometimes feels like hardware has taken back a seat to the software that drives our devices. Button of the month will look at what some of the, those buttons and switches are like on old devices and new to com- appreciate how we interact with them on a physical tactile level. It goes by many names, the t- track point, the nub, the mouse nipple, the pointing stick, the weird red dot on your keyboard, love it or hate it, the famous or infamous mouse solution has practically become the symbol of ThinkPad's business-focused laptops. And it is true. It's a well-thought-out but ultimately failed alternative to low, ubiquitous trackpad. But there's an argument to be made that it might actually be a better form of mouse for laptops, as bizarre as it is to use nowadays. Pioneered by IBM in 1992 before Lenovo took over the ThinkPad branding and persisting to this day, the intention behind the trackpoint is fundamentally different from other input methods, namely unlike most other forms of mice, the track point relies on pressure, not movement. With a traditional master trackpad, you're typically moving an object in an analogous function fashion to show show how you want to move the cursor. Whether you're moving or um, your finger on the, a trackpad or an entire mouse held in your hand, the track point functions more like a tiny joystick, though. And it's kind of true though, because um, you're putting your finger on it and you're slightly putting pressure on um, every direction you want to go. And the cursor moves around based on um, pressure that you put on the nub. Apply more pressure, the mouse moves faster. It's a much steeper learning curve to follow though. It's easy to understand how a mouse moves since it translates the movement more directly. Move your hand in a circle and the cursor does too. Move fast, the the cursor moves fast but the track point dis- demands more skill. You have to learn how to apply pressure to move the mouse the way you want. Despite the initial difficulty, track point um, claims numerous benefits for those willing to learn. I mean, it is true too, but being located in the middle of a keyboard allows for nearly instantaneous access. Instead of having to shift your hands down to the trackpad every time you want to move the mouse, combined with touch typing, the trackpoint promises an ultra-fast keyboard experience that never asks you to shift your hands or take your eyes off the screen. And that's not the only perk. There are other perks, too. The trackpoint is inf- infinitely scrollable, unlike a traditional mouse or trackpad, which requires repositioning your finger or hand when you reach the edge of your trackpad or mouse. So that is another advantage. It also takes up um, physically less space than a trackpad, so you save more space. Um, and also... Um, there's not many. There's not as much problems with the size of the trackpad, which many people complain of. Um, not everyone agrees, of course. Um, the trackpoint dates back to a time where navigating documents and spreadsheets was the most important thing you can do on a laptop, and it's harder to use it for long, smooth motions like, say, using a pen tool in Photoshop to outline a shape. 
So touchpads have come a long way since the 1990s too, but um, modern touchpads have a better functionality nowadays than it did back then. So that's why um, this track point isn't much of to use for many people. But it's hard to imagine now that with touchpads having become almost universally adopted as the um, the file control method for laptops, but at one point trackpads were just as viable an option for the primary mouse input for laptops, with other major companies like Dell, HP, and Toshiba all offering the input method. In an alternative timeline, the trackpoint, not the trackpad, could have become the dominant mouse mode on laptops instead of the minor curiosity as it is today. So the appeal for trackpoint is um, one of the many, including myself. I think it's pretty hard to explain like what it's about, but based on the relative scarcity of pointing stick mice on most products outside of ThinkPad universe, the only major device that um, I've seen is the new Nintendo 3DS from 2014 with its C-Stick, and it seems that the most of the world agrees. But even today, TrackPoint fans across the internet still swear by their favorite input method that the broker will no argument that it isn't the superior form of computer navigation. The ThinkPad subreddit, for example, is full of appreciative posts. It's like a non-QWERTY keyboard layout in that respect. Um, but potentially better to use alternatives that exist only at the fringes of computing because other input methods are so much more popular and it would take too much effort to switch for the track point. And I definitely agree with this article in because of how the track point tried to build a better mouse. But did it really? No, it didn't. And that's why I think um, ThinkPad is pretty interesting trying to put a track point to build a better mouse. Alright, next story is Apple might not include a charger with the iPhone 12 and it's a pretty controversial topic. A lot of people are saying it's a bad thing but it could be a good thing. Not everyone has wireless chargers or um, stuff like this. The ways that Apple wants you to charge their phones. So over the weekend um, there's a lot of sites that reported that Apple analyst Ming-Chi Kuo is claiming that the um, iPhones coming in either September or October is released um, won't have chargers or earpods in the box. It's really like they really want to be wireless. I mean, that's Apple. They made AirPods, getting rid of the AirPods soon, getting rid of chargers. But if you want to know what most tech bloggers thought of the rumor, um, you can go over to see their tweets. I'll link that in the um, show notes below. And almost all of which amount to that sounds like a bad user hostile thing to do. I say good, drop the inbox charger, but I have a little bit of requests. If you want to know what most... I say that the, clear, the clearest price piece uh, I've seen about pulling the charger out of the box comes from the Venturecopolis MG's Siegler. Um, so I think that it's pretty good to drop the charger and earpods because they're going to lower the price of these products. And that's why I think the iPhone 12 is going to be so much cheaper because of its small size and also because there are no earpods or chargers so you don't have to buy those things with the phone. And that just um, puts it at a better, 
price point and makes it more competitive with um, their competitors like Samsung's phones that have really increased over the price over the past years. But um, other than that, maybe they're just really trying to push to a wireless future and more things like that. But maybe. It very well might be the case that Apple is making this move for purely selfish reasons, char changing, charging the same amount of money and giving a customer less. But I think they could lower the price. And But maybe Apple wants to put this move. I mean, it depends on what Apple wants to do. To all of those issues and more, I say, yeah, but I really don't care about if they include chargers or not because there's going to have to have a way of charging. But I think that if you take away the chargers, there's going to be less e-waste. Because think about it, a lot of people don't have use for their older chargers because they don't use the device that uses those chargers. So that'll be less waste for um, the world. And also, it'll be probably easier to charge with wireless charging but um i think that's pretty interesting because anchor is the company that makes most of the well-regarded external batteries and chargers and there was to talk vision for the futures of chargers and USB-C. I mean this is a very controversial topic so many might want um chargers in the box and some people just don't want chargers in the box but it's really up to you and whether you like it or not that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. And if you did, please um, give a comment in the Apple podcast review area and um, tell us what you want the next episode to be and also um, how the podcast is going and whether you liked it or not. And also, please don't forget to um, support me at patreon.com slash truetech and I'll also be in the show notes below. But that's all I have for you guys today. And I hope you guys stay safe. Catch you guys in the next one. Peace.